The Canby Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Quequitlam peoples. It's April 22nd, 2022, and there are 176 days left until the Vancouver municipal elections. This is the Canby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. What a show. And I, I, I'm very excited to talk about everything we get to talk about today. Some of it is hilarious. Some of it is monumentally important. Some of it is just petty bullshit, but the fun kind. And I'm so happy that you're joining us to listen. Indeed. It's been a busy couple of weeks in the city of Vancouver in politics. We meant to do a special episode last week just on the Vancouver plan and on the housing budget from the federal government. We're still going to talk about that today, but now we also have to blitz through a wild amount of news that seemingly just all happened. We're in election yes. season. We are in election season, and so, you know, it's time to get into it. But before we do that, it is time to remind you, as we always do, of patreon.com slash report. That is patreon.com slash report. Yes, patreon.com slash report. Your location for supporting citizen journalism here in the city of Vancouver and the environs. Without your generous support, we would be unable to do what we do here at the Canby Report. So we thank you every a little bit of support, every big bit of support that you are able to give us. Uh, it is going to, among other things, buying me a new set of headphones this week as I managed to destroy mine. It happens. That's why depreciation is accounted for in our society budget. <laughs> yep. But first, let's go back to the last council meeting we talked about we made a prediction or we made a hope we made a wish that our wish has been fulfilled we asked council not to second well we didn't specifically ask them but we kind of hoped that they would not second calling hardwick's motion calling for a plebiscite on hosting the olympics and let's hear if that happened uh that's it for questions from council um calling for for a seconder Once, twice, three times. No seconder. So thank you very much, uh, Council. We're going to move to item five. Aw, clean. Did no one second your motion? Real Ferris Bueller energy. It, it, the call for a second actually followed some back and forth among Council, and I caught up on some of the debate through Twitter and the follow-up after, but it, and I watched a touch of it, but counselors were asking her questions like, did you ask the nations who are leading this bid if they want Vancouver to have a plebiscite? And she didn't really have answers. She said, no, I wouldn't even know how to do that. It really just, I think, frustrated the rest of council. They have email. They have email. They have phone numbers. You can also direct staff via motions to do that for you because they are well-versed in that kind of nation-to-nation -nation relationship, which one would think you as a sitting councillor should also be. Yeah. Not like it's part of your job or anything. Moving on to 
at, well, Gene Swanson's motion, which did get a seconder, but was unfortunately only supported by Christine Boyle. Uh, this was the anti-police budget increase motion. Yeah, so we talked about how council at the last meeting had to decide how to fund the budget increase that the province forced upon them, the $5.7 million. We talked about how they would need a two-thirds vote to raise taxes because they would have to reverse themselves. So that didn't happen. They decided to just spend their reserves. And Gene Swanson put forward this two-part motion to reject the increase and to write a sternly worded letter. Well, the sternly worded letter passed because those are things the council is very good at writing, but council opted overwhelmingly to not support a symbolic rejection. Some counselors suggested it may lead to legal battles, which I would have encouraged. Yes. It, it, it would, it should. And, and perhaps this is something that council can think about for years going forward. If it wants to reject a police budget increase, to not increase the police budget in, in years future, it should factor in an amount of money to spend to defend municipal autonomy in policing. The, the letter in particular asks Minister Farnworth to clarify whether, quote, municipalities have any role in overseeing police budgets that they pay for or whether they are simply a rubber stamp, end quote. This is, I, I think, a fight worth having. And if municipalities want to exert some of their control over the policing that goes on and that they are paying for, they should be willing to pony up the money in order to fight it in the courts. Fighting it in the courts would probably cost less than $5.7 million, too. Probably, Maybe. depending Maybe. how long it went. It might get there, but I was thinking it might cost like $2 billion. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is something that I think this upcoming council should be cognizant of, and I think we should ask our council candidates whether or not they would be willing to uh, fail a police budget increase and fight that and, and defend civic autonomy in our court system uh, and put civic money towards that. The fear I have is that I'm already seeing a shift in discourse where the police propaganda unit, their promotions, their PR is working overdrive and is getting a lot of support from some media, from some counselors and from some political operatives to argue there is a crime increase. There is an increase in violent crime. We need to take this seriously. And, you know, Justin McElroy's got a good thread out there going through the latest statistics, which say, all right, if you dig through the, here, there are some numbers that go up. There are lots of numbers that also go down. Overall, it's kind of a wash. You can pull from their stats, whatever you want. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that Justin is right there. We, we should be willing to talk about this, like, honestly, and it put the side of not even, not even that, that civic control isn't like, not even that, like, it's not important to fund the police. It is important to fund the police. It's just whether or not the police are going to have to themselves make some hard choices as to where they want to allocate their resources within the limited amount that we are willing to spend on them. Indeed. Moving on to the next bit of discussion from that last council before we 
continue to try to move through the rest of what's happened in the last two weeks. One other motion I want to come back to is this idea that council should support and push the province to allow them to adopt progressive property taxes. This was another Gene Swanson motion. Yeah. This one ultimately failed in a tie 5-5 vote as those elected as NPAers voted against it and those on the quote-unquote progressive labor side voted for it. Notably absent was Mayor Kennedy Stewart. And I did look into this. It turns out he had a pre-approved leave of absence for a regular meeting. And it sounds like there was a miscommunication between him and Cope because he has been on the record as supporting progressive property taxes, but he, unfortunately for him, missed the vote to endorse that. What what stupid amateur hour bullshit is happening at council? This sounds like Cope didn't do the work. Yeah, no, that's, that's what I mean, is that, like, so- something went very wrong here. In the French legislature, there is a big curtain where occasionally legislators will hide behind it and dart out at the last moment in order to defeat the government. And that has very little to do with exactly what we're talking about right now. I just love this fact and I wanted to share it. But like, that is the kind of organization that we should be expecting from our elected officials and their staffs. We did not get that here. And so now I presume that reversing this would require a two thirds, or is that only for, for matters on, on budget and, and policy? I don't, well, I don't know what happens when it fails. We both know a bit of Robert's rules. We should know this better. Yeah. It also, it also depends. Like they can, any of them can still run on it and the next council can do what they want because they're not as tied. Yeah, but what, what gets me here, like, so Kennedy Stewart was the deciding vote in it, in the end that made it fail, but there were still five votes against this by councillors who have expressed concerns about the city's ability to raise funds, the city's financial state. And if you're the Rebecca Blyes, the Sarah Kirby Youngs, even the Melissa DeGenovas, even the Colleen, well, not the Colleen Hardwicks, but any of the others who is concerned about the city's ability to raise revenue, you've just now gone to bat for avoiding an increase on the top houses. Like you could support a progressive property tax implementation that is revenue neutral, that did not actually bring in more money. It would lower taxes for the lowest property owners. You could lower taxes for quite a few property owners. Like right, right now, our system is not great. The mill rate is obtuse and, and mysterious. And I think that at least allowing the city to explore the potential of a progressive property tax would be like something worth studying. But they're not going to get to do that. So no, they are not moving along to politics. Who's running? Well, we had a few announcements in the past week. The biggest one came right after we finished recording last week is that Sarah Kirby Young, Lisa Dominato and Rebecca Bly, who we mused might be deciding to run with the same slate, all announced they will be running with Ken Sims, a better city Vancouver as a big chunk of his council nominees. Yes. And that is going to come as a massive shock to anyone who saw their videos, which all looked the same and produced by the same people. 
it looks like basically the NPA slate from last time is roughly lining up to run as not the NPA slate, but rather with a better city, minus Melissa Giganova and Colleen Hardwick. And John Cooper. And John, well, yes. For council, I mean. Yeah. Over in the greens, we have some park board news that came out just yesterday, this morning. I'm losing track of time. But their entire slate, Dave Demers, Camille DeMont, and Stuart McKinnon, have all announced that they will not be running again for park board. Uh, I guess they'd all made the decision at different times, but did the formal announcement all just in the past 24 hours. And that's a pretty big blow to just the board between them and John Cooper and potentially John Irwin, who's jumping over to Vision, they are losing a lot of members of their capacity. Yeah, it's it's a shame for the board to like lose that institutional memory. It's important to have people reelected. It's important to have some kind of continuity in, in governance in these types of bodies. Otherwise, they end up being effectively staff-run organizations. And while I deeply respect the, the Vancouver Park staff, there is, however, a role for elected oversight and a strong parks board in order to to control and direct what staff are doing and how our parks are run. One of our patrons made the joke that the park board has just effectively abolished itself. <laughs> okay. Yeah, to, to their credit, I think the Greens on park board, like they get a lot of, everyone on park board gets a lot of hell for a lot of the chaos and just the fumbling of the alcohol and parks issue over the past couple of years. But I think the Greens have done some good work there. Notably, they signed a historic agreement to commit to co-manage Vancouver's parks with the local First Nations. That was a lot of work I know that the Greens in particular led. There's been work on accessibility and just generally trying to make our parks better. I mean, everyone's got their critiques, but I'm a little disappointed. If there's somewhere that I feel like the Greens are very well suited for, maybe it's just the stereotype, but it feels like parks. Yes. Also not running again from the Greens, Estrelita Gonzalez, uh, the Green School Board trustee, has announced that she is not running. This, I think, highlights to me a problem with the park board and school board generally, which is that it is tough to effectively take on this part-time job. Yeah. Like, if park board and school board were full-time positions, I think it would be a lot easier for people to, like take them on as, as major responsibilities. And like the education of a city of 600,000 rising to 920,000 people apparently is not an insignificant job. Like there is, there is work for elected officials to do in this respect. And so like, I wouldn't be opposed to paying park board and school board people more money in order to make this a full-time position. Yeah. For the record, school board trustees get about 33,000 a year, depending on what positions they hold and park board trustees make just under 19,000 for their work on that role. Speaking of numbers and money, I put a big blog up on our website that I'm going to link to. We won't dive into it too much because numbers are kind of like, this would be like tables and on a podcast. And date yeah. numbers on a podcast. It's not and, always and the best. No, we are okay with charts on a podcast every once in a while. Just big blocks of numbers on a podcast. This does not make for great audio content. So 
Come join us in the uh, expanded Canby Report media empire, the leg and boot oeuvre, as you will, and check out Ian's party finances blog post at canbyreport.ca slash Vancouver's dash political dash party dash finances. Yeah, all the this was the first year parties had to report their annual reports at the end of 2021. So it's just a treasure trove of information, but also just a ton of gaps because of political naivete. Everyone's still figuring out the rules, a lot of potential shifting around of where money was. Some rules only came in on December 1st, so arguably a lot of donations weren't accounted for, like where I say some of the only officials to actually donate to council were Adrian Carr, Gene Swanson, and Christine Boyle, where Christine Boyle only gave $100. In theory, she gave a lot more, I've heard, but it may just not have been captured by the reporting requirements. So we will have definitely better numbers this time next year to talk about. Also, shame on the NPA vision and Progress Vancouver for not filing anything. They have at least until the end of the month if they pay the $500 fee. And then I don't know what happens, but we're going to ask Elections BC. Well, if someone who once ran afoul of Vancouver's or Metro Vancouver's public financing rules, I understand that sometimes you mess this stuff up, but it is important in a public democracy kind of way. I'm going to allow you one number. Is there any one number that you would like to share? 125,000. That's roughly the amount of money that both one city and a better city, Vancouver, report as their accumulated surplus. That is their assets minus their liabilities. So $125,000 plus or minus is how much they have in the bank. That is $100,000 more money than anyone else has. And it's not even necessarily all their money, but that is a lot of money for those two parties to be sitting on going into this year, especially for one city who I think a lot of people would be shocked to see that they have a big chest. Yeah. And I think that bodes well for them going into this campaign season. I think for a lot of people who I think moved their votes from vision and parked them with the greens last time around, I think a lot of those people who are pro development and pro like increase in housing supply, like pro housing supply are going to be dissatisfied with green performance on council and be looking for another place to park their votes. And so one city having that large war chest lends credibility to them. It, it's important to have fundraising abilities and, and in particular, looking at how one city has raised that money, they've got tons of donors, tons of small donors, mm -hmm. in fact, which like speaks well to their grassroots organizing capability, you know, at, at liberal conventions, uh, there, there's kind of a, a rule of thumb that I have, I have looked at for leadership candidates, uh, or people who are running for, for party offices. And part of that is your ability to fundraise enough money to host a hospitality suite. It's the same kind of heuristic thing here. Are you able to raise enough money to present yourself as a credible organization? And I think one city has unquestionably done that. Moving to housing debates, there's a sort of controversial rezoning happening at 1477 West Broadway for a market and moderate income rental home project. Uh, what makes this really interesting is two of the people who've written in support of the project. Yes. So we have gotten these 
uh, letters from City Duo, a, a couple in on Twitter that cover meetings and open houses and change across our city. So saith their Twitter bio. But the two people who have written in support are Minister Eby and Minister Heyman. Yeah, David Eby writes in his capacity as minister responsible for housing. George Heyman writes in his capacity as the MLA for Vancouver Fairview, not as minister of I want to say environment, I'm going to get it's yelled at if that's wrong. But they are both in support of this project and this rezoning. They note that it'll be a large amount of office space, homes, and grocery stores above a future South Granville transit station for the SkyTrain extension and a much needed relief to the housing. Not, you know, it doesn't solve the housing crisis, but opposing Nothing this will, will not the help. Housing crisis other than. Houses. <laughs> Houses will solve the housing crisis. Council will not solve the housing crisis, which is why we need to elect a different one. Speaking of council, what's coming up at council? Yeah, there's not a lot coming up on Tuesday's agenda. There's a few reports on taxes and property taxes that I find interesting, but we won't bother talking about here. Two motions I want to talk about. First from Kennedy Stewart. He wants to raise the empty homes tax from 3 to 5%, noting that so far his increases in the empty homes tax have helped free up and put back onto the market a lot of homes and empty rentals. And he's hoping for the rest of council to endorse this in continued stick. Yeah, I, I think this is a great motion. It, the empty homes tax needs to, I mean, it's, it's part of the solution. It's not the entire solution because as we will come to later, we need to build, build, build in order to meet the expected population growth for the city. But if we are going to build, we need to make sure that these houses don't sit fallow. And in order to do that, the incentives must be there to make sure that housing stock gets used as housing stock and not as investment instruments, which means that they have to be punishing. And a 5% tax is going to be precisely 66% more than a 3% tax. His motion would also call for the number of audits to increase from 9,000 to 20,000 a year to just have more tax cops running around banging on empty doors. And he would like a staff report back to find out how well that's working, as well as what happens if you go to 10%? Yeah. What if? What if we go to 100%? Just keep <sighs> cranking it up. I mean, it's just the cost of the home it people will start selling yeah. them at that point the yeah. other interesting motion on the table comes from councillor melissa de genova who is very excited about the notion of closed circuit television cctv and putting them everywhere everywhere it seems like to help solve crime to basically put them everywhere not monitored yet and to work with cops to help do this she oh, cites she cites reports from the UK and London police and a number of others as arguments for help bringing this and some anecdotes about how it stopped a guy attacking someone with a box cutter during the Olympics. Oh my God. London is a bloody surveillance state and we should not be emulating them. Have I agree strongly? It is bananas. Like mass surveillance measures are, are tools of oppression and should not be part of Vancouver's plan going forward. Like you can find anecdata data for any kind of, well, anything you can find anecdotal data to support any bullshit policy that you want to implement. 
but this would be bad. It would be very, very bad. Cite Matab's Twitter thread, which is actually where I found this motion first, at M-A-H-T-B-Y, link in the show notes. She goes through why this is a concern and how it does not increase safety, especially for women. And, you know, links to some Internet Freedom Foundation work on just the challenges this poses. And, like, there are some documented cases of how it backfired for women's safety in London most recently. So I'm not a fan. I'm obviously quite biased as a board member of the BCCLA, but I say it also just as a person who doesn't like cameras everywhere. They don't help. No. In other civic problems, no mail in the downtown east side. Can the yeah. post ended mail delivery on East Haste between the 0 and 100 block following health and safety concerns on March 23rd? Residents must now pick up their mail at 333 Woodland Drive and provide government photo ID, which, incidentally, many of them will not have. Yeah, this is a huge issue. This means things like assistant checks aren't being delivered to where people live or are residing. Creates a lot of other concerns and challenges. Canada Post and their union haven't fully elaborated on the health and safety concerns, but there are anecdotes in some of the reports about people being yelled at, just concerns about public safety in the downtown east side. It's all a bit vague, though there are efforts to try to ameliorate the situation. Activists in the downtown east side are very concerned that this is going to end up with police escorts for mail carriers on this stretch of road, which will further criminalize people living and experiencing homelessness. The Our Homes Can't Wait Coalition is raising a lot of Concerned about this both on Twitter and they are planning a protest at Carolyn Hastings on Tuesday coming up at 2.30 p.m. Mail is a right. Yes. In this country. So is our social assistance. So, yeah, I just felt we needed to flag this story because it's a big civic issue. Moving along to TransLink's 10-year priorities. Uh, the priorities for the TransLink 2050 plan have been released and they are ambitious. Yeah. Transport 2050 was a pretty big plan, as we talked about a bit and looked at a bit. Now TransLink has tried to say, all right, to, to accomplish that 30 years worth of, only 28 years worth of build-out, we're going to have to do a lot in the next 10, in the next 5 even. And so they want to do a lot. And right now, this is just under consultation, so you have until May 4th to answer a survey on this. But they want to convert a number of rapid buses to bus rapid transit. This includes the R3 along Lougheed out by me, the R5 along Hastings, and the R6 after it launches in Surrey along Scott Road. They're going to implement a bunch of rapid bus routes both in the next five years and in the second half of that. I'm most excited, though, about the gondola and Skytrain extensions. Yes, um, speaking, though, of a little bit about bus rapid transit, I lived in Brisbane for a number... Well, no, I lived in Gold Coast, but Brisbane, which is an hour north of Gold Coast, has an extensive bus rapid transit system, and it works. It works well. And admittedly, this is, like, complementing Brisbane's already pretty extensive rail link system, which runs all the way down to the Gold Coast, hence why I was able to get there, and that that serves a, like huge municipality in a, a fairly equitable and considered way. Bus rapid transit uh, is, as I'm sure many of you know, a separate lane 
like a, a separate space for the buses and is for the buses exclusively. It functions a lot like rail in, in so much as that it is like, if not great separated, then like separate from other types of traffic. And it is an incredibly effective way of bringing rapid transit to places where maybe there isn't enough demand to justify the expense of rail expansion. And I think we should all be very excited about the rapid bus potentialities. There are a ton of them, as well as a ton of new rapid bus routes, which is also encouraging to see. Yeah, the map that is included in the Daily Hive article that we'll link to shows it very well. There are just routes going all over Vancouver, new connections to North Van, all over Burnaby, out to Maple Ridge, down to Delta, Surrey. Most of the region will be getting something, which is nice to see. As, as well as hundreds of kilometers of new bikeways. Yeah. So, yeah, go take a look at this. The big question mark here is who's going to pay for it? They haven't even really figured out how much this will all cost, but they do note that just maintaining and replacing old infrastructure might cost as much as $3.7 billion. So... The feds and province, Whoa. if you're looking for something to get the city for, I was going to say Christmas, but that's too far away. We need to start doing this sooner. Easter, a late Easter gift for the city. Buy us budget some day. rapid transit. Even a lovely budget day present. Minister of Finance can get their new shoes and we can get something also transportation related. He uh, said, torture a metaphor <laughs> to the point of death. Speaking of holidays, though, there's going to be something special happening on Halloween this year. Yes. Um, down in Surrey, the McCallum trial is going to begin. As we all know, uh, Mayor Doug McCallum of Surrey is being charged with mischief for making a false report to police following a incident in or lack thereof in a save on parking lot. This is going to be just after the civic election and seven days have seven days have been set aside for the trial. The dates are going to be formally confirmed next week, so saith Janet Brown. Yeah, this will be interesting to watch. It's really notable that it's after the election. Like, I don't think the courts cared, but it does mean that this oh, is going to hang over. Care. They yeah. absolutely did not care. Yeah. This, was, this was entirely based on courtroom availability and the availability of the lawyers. But it is going to make it really interesting to watch this hangover McCallum's re-election bid, presuming he runs for re-election. I don't know if he's formally announced yet. Yeah, that'll be interesting to watch. I, I am fascinated to see how he is going to respond to this. I am absolutely gobsmacked that this is happening at all, to be honest, because we should expect better from our public officials, frankly. Oh. Moving along to the Vancouver plan, at long last, we have a city plan. Before we dive into it, it's been out for a couple of weeks. And so I wanted to start with some of the reaction in the Vancouver Sun. And I was going to pull up the Globe and Mail, but it's been paywalled and I can't bother to go and find it. But there have been there were at least two letters in the Vancouver Sun under the headline Detached Home Dwellers Opinions Not Heard. First we have Mary Boulanger, Boulanger. who poses Wanger. questions such as what up to six stories will be allowed on my block one block <laughs> away from us up to 12 stories will be allowed up to 12 stories between Maine and Fraser transit hubs and corridors up to 20 stories 
In this plan, there appears to be hardly any detached homes left. Around the existing detached houses, there is a lot of green spaces. I think she means backyards. Yeah, that's not, that's not green space. That's, that's private, private space. space. Yeah. That green space helps regulate temperature and includes gardens and insect and bird habitats. No, they don't. Well, I mean, some of them do, but most of them lawn is bad for everything other than my yeah. kid playing on. Under the Vancouver plan, it looks like that green space will be lost, covered up by larger developments. She goes on to say, at, I asked city staff at a drop-in event how many responses the survey they had received from people living in detached homes and what percentage of total responses were from people in detached homes. They didn't know. Politely took my info and haven't responded to my questions yet. I did an informal survey of our block. Of the 10 people I asked, none were aware of the height of buildings proposed for our area. None were aware of a survey where they could express their opinions. Her letter is followed up by Larry Emmerich, who writes, To start, as a longtime resident of Vancouver's unique equestrian community, the Southlands, I take a special interest in any initiative that aims to increase density, which in my neighborhood means more people, traffic, construction, erosion of wildlife habitat, and ultimately the relentless decline of Vancouver's horse population. What? Wait, what is, number one, what is your neighborhood? Like, are Southlands. You- yeah, I, I can only assume it's Southlands, and Southlands is not slated for massive redevelopment in this plan. It's not. It's fine. Southlands is fine. He says, well-meaning initiatives on housing affordability and density must take care not to diminish the livability and livelihoods of those who already live, work, and play here. Joni Mitchell said it best. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone. They pave paradise and put up a parking lot. Yes, but not, we're not putting up a parking lot. We're putting up homes for people to live in. It makes me... It's literally anti-parking lot. Perhaps it makes me a little blue. And I think perhaps he needs to look at this from both sides now. Like, the word parking appears in the document six times. One of them around green buildings says design strategies such as parking maximums, which is the idea that rather than parking minimums, we should have a cap on how many parking stalls you put in. Uh, Shared district parking rather than uh, minimum parking. They literally say you should disincentivize driving multiple times in this document. Limiting parking supply and public space on streets over parking. Like The only times it brings up parking, it's against it. Yeah, like you can judge my my point of bringing these letters in, though, is to like judge the plan by its worst critics. Yeah, fair enough. And like, I I don't know. It just seems like if you're going to be around the river, I got to stop. I got to stop with the Johnny Mitchell songs. It's it's something that we should expect. And it's a fight, again, worth having. But it's always disappointing to see that people are willing to preserve their own happiness at the expense of the well-being of many, many more people. And it's not even their own well-being. It's their own personal conception of happiness. It's their status quo. It's the comfort to which they've become accustomed to. But even that is not permanent. The comfort for you and your horses. Horses. I cannot believe it. Uh, I think, like, newspapers get lots of letters, and I think they're very good these days at picking out the the creme de la creme. Most latest ones, yeah. yeah. So, thank you, Mary and Larry, 
for sharing your opinions with the Vancouver Sun so we could enjoy them on this podcast. Let's talk about the actual plan and let's talk about it seriously, though. Yes. Big, big increases to population. Maybe not big enough, but we are expecting 260,000 more people raising our population to 920,000 uh, and 210,000 more jobs by 2050. Now, doing some quick back of the napkin math and fudging the numbers just a little bit, this means that we are expecting roughly 9,000 people per year, every year from now until 2050. Yeah, and I believe Vancouver's current housing strategy targets are about 72, it's, yeah, it's 72,000 homes over 10 years. So 7,200 homes per year. Not every individual person needs their own home. A lot of people have multi, multi-human homes, like mine has four humans in it now. That makes it more efficient. So the plan is actually not, the current targets are not actually far off of what we need to build, though you could argue we have a housing deficit that we need to overcome. Yeah. Uh, and like 2000 homes a year is nothing to sneeze at. That's an important, that, that is an important gap that city council is going to need to address. And so to fit those homes, this plan as it's drafted has a lot of changes for the city, like dramatic yes. overarching changes in pretty much everything. Yeah. This plan has some vision. It has some big ideas. Specifically, these are drawn from the plan itself, equitable housing and complete neighborhoods, an economy that works for all, and climate protection and restored ecosystems. And while these sound slightly like platitudes, they are also good guiding principles. Yeah, and in the plan, each of them is drawn out in a lot of detail and form the main sections of the report, right? So the first Mm -hmm. one, equitable housing and complete neighborhoods is talking about ensuring affordable housing options to ease the crisis, transforming low-density areas to include housing options for everyone, leverage transit investment to support growing neighborhoods, also protecting what we love about our city, including affordable rental, local business, arts and culture, but also creating complete walkable neighbors neighborhoods so that we have childcare plazas, community ridable, facilities. Ridable neighborhoods. I'm never going to get over this first comment. It's... Won't someone think of the horses? The economy needs to make sure we have jobs in every corner of the city. I think that's pretty clear, as well as notably supporting and expanding industrial and employment areas, something that I think often gets overlooked in urbanist discussions is the importance of industrial lands, kind of because we think of them as gross. And when I play SimCity, I'm like, if I don't have much industry, my citizens aren't mad. They could just work in commercial districts, but it's not like that in reality. No, we need industrial districts. And in fact, this is, if one-time listeners will remember, this is what the sneaky dictatorship comment that Doug McCallum, notice mischief maker, alleged, was talking about when he was commenting at the Metro Vancouver board meeting. There is a need for an industrial land reserve in Metro Vancouver. We need to protect industrial lands. They are incredibly important for the economic well-being of a region. And without them, we don't have places to work and we don't make stuff anymore. We can't be an entirely service-oriented economy. At very least, we need the ports to bring the stuff other people make into town. Yeah. 
but ideally we're also making stuff too. Uh, and the third big idea you mentioned, climate protection and restored ecosystems. This mm. one I find to be the neatest and has some of the coolest stuff, but I probably won't actually get that much into it. But it's really looking at working on climate change adaptability and also like daylighting streams and bringing ecosystems back, bringing nature essentially back into the city in many ways, both to support the natural ecosystems, but also to help fight climate change. It's really cool My stuff. My friend has this ridiculous idea of, of rewilding Vancouver to the point where we have urban cougars and bears again. I have those out in Coquitlam, so. Yeah, is is hilarious and great and a very fun thought experiment, but I think probably unfeasible. One, one thing that I think is notable in this is that Oak Ridge is becoming a second downtown. Theoretically. Well, first already downtown is expanding. Like it, it already does expand off the peninsula, includes the Broadway corridor. But this plan really highlights that like the main core of the region is the downtown peninsula and Broadway corridor. Like th that's yeah. where the majority of the jobs already are. That's where a lot of people are going to be living and working, especially once you add in another SkyTrain. Yeah, this is the Broadway corridor stretching roughly from Arbutus to Clark, I want to say, in this map, possibly all the way up to Victoria. And, and I think this is a good understanding of, of where business growth is going to happen in the city. Multiplexes. Yeah, uh, so the entire city is being rezoned. Yeah, the Brinder plan is going into action, kind of, sort of. Actually, it's not clear if the rezoning will happen. We can talk about implementation later, but the idea would be the official development plan for the entire city would stipulate a minimum level of multiplexes that is up to, I think it says six stories in every neighborhood in the city. It, it's six, it's six stories in the villages. No, okay. it's not six stories in okay. like the cream areas. Those can be like fourplexes and we'll probably stick to the three-story limit the the villages will have missing middle, middle houses uh, and those will be exclusively around like our major shopping streets here like fraser's and mans the areas that mary is complaining about but well frankly we we need desperately the neighborhood centers however are going to be existing local shopping streets and they are going to theoretically accommodate more housing up to 12 stories. Now, this is actually an area where I take a little bit of uh, issue with the plan because our heritage shopping streets need to be protected. Like those buildings are like exist in a way that businesses of all stripes can live there and like operate there. And if we're going to redevelop all of those areas, it's going to raise rents and lease rates for those types of businesses. That is a problem. And we need to make sure that that transition either happens very slowly with lots of consideration and helps preserve the businesses that may not necessarily be able to survive that type of transition or move that density one block in. Having things right on the arterials is not what Vancouver's planning was originally designed for. Originally, we wanted the streetcar streets to be like 
have, have single family homes on them and then have the apartments further away because we wanted the most people living slightly away from the streetcars because the quality of life was better. That's why yeah. on Davy Street, you can still see remnants of these single family homes right along Davy and then have all the apartments one block in. Very into the placemaking and urban design section of the report here and the plan. It does flag this challenge of do you overbuild the shopping street or do you push that off? And they do try to highlight that the shopping street itself, and they have this nice image where you could see the rather than this, the don't do this, you have the tallest buildings on the shopping street and then it kind of gets shorter and shorter down to the single family homes a few blocks away. Mm -hmm. They suggest, you know, have some shorter buildings along the shopping street. This allows more light into the area as well so that people who are shopping aren't just covered in those dangerous shadows that we so horribly mocked over the Jericho opposition. But there is a little bit more natural light when you have that lower building height along the main arterial and then one block off, you go up and then you come back down as you get further away because your transit is also probably along your shopping street. So that is the approach they want to go. They suggest as well, allowing for low and moderate income houses to live on the quieter streets rather than rate on the busy arterial where you often get more exhaust in at least the short term, short to midterm while we still have internal combustion engines and even just buses putting off a lot of particulates off wheels and stuff. It It is not the healthiest place to live on an arterial. So making sure the majority of the housing is a little bit off those streets. It's better for people shopping. It's better for people living. It's just a better city. Yes. So they're trying to reflect that, but the, the challenges around rents that you flag, like, you know, that's a gentrification concern that's going to be thrown at this on the housing and on the business side. And it's an affordability question. It's affordability for both housing and for employment and employers. Not that the left should go to bat for the bosses, but there no. are no jobs. But if there are no employers in some ways, but, you know, I, th I think it's trying to balance those. But I think the thing we're going to get into in a bit is realizing this is going to take a lot of work. Yeah, this is going to be a very challenging achievement, and it's going to be on the next council to do this, because frankly, I trust this council to do anything. There is a lot in this plan that is very laudable. And I, I think Vancouver city staff should be very proud of what they have come up with. There are like huge changes that are going to have to happen in order for things like the complete neighborhoods idea of where Theoretically, everyone should be living within a five minute walk of shops and services that that difficult to get to. Like I I've lived in a food desert before I've lived in one of those desert areas before, and it sucks. Like it's very inconvenient and it's nice now living in a place where I can just go and walk and have access to uh, a wide array of retail services. Uh, have access to a grocery store, be able to like, just go out and, and see people on the street. I, I value this immensely. And, and I think that making these complete neighborhoods, bringing that to everyone is a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah. And there's a focus in there as well about arts and culture and making sure that 
has a place in every part of the city. One of the challenges I know artists are always facing in every city is affordable studio space in which to create their stuff that no one really wants to pay for, unfortunately. And so how do we make sure that artists can survive and do their work and make their, I don't want to say products, but make their materials, make their art in the city? Because that's one of the things that gives the city vibrancy and gives the city a life and transforms it in theory from a no fun city to a, I don't know, Vancouver plan. Yeah. <laughs> Imagined city. Vancouver plus. Yeah. And on that hopeful note, let us move on to the federal housing budget. $10 billion to throw Ten? at housing. $10 billion over, I want to say five years. So that's on top of what the government is already spending, which is around $10 billion a year. So an extra $2 billion a year, though it's not exactly spent year over year. I did compare this to what BC has been spending, and BC spends about a billion a year and is promising to spend another billion over the next 10 years. So this is an order of magnitude bigger than BC's housing investments, which makes sense because there's about an order of magnitude more people in Canada than there are in BC. Yep. I love when the numbers work like that. Yeah. Very pleasing. Very, very nice. The biggest chunk of money in here is $4 billion over five years to CMHC to launch a housing accelerator fund. This is super vague. That's because it's designed to be flexible, Ian. It's designed to be flexible. <laughs> but it promises to help cities make housing happen, whatever it takes. Yeah. And they, they have illustrated a couple of things that could be part of this, including an annual per door incentive for municipalities, upfront funding for investments in municipal housing planning and delivery processes that will speed up housing development. The focus will be on increasing supply. The government supports are going to be targeted to ensure balanced supply that includes a needed increase to the supply for affordable housing. So, like, this is going to be hopefully focused on, on cities. I mean, like, most of us live in cities, so I think it makes sense that the, the planning would focus on, on increasing the housing supply within those cities, especially since those cities are those places where Global market forces have come ashore, as you will, to absolutely jack up the price of housing. Yeah, you could argue that basically every municipality in the country is probably not building enough homes, but the problem is only acutely felt in the cities where people, no offense to our lumbies of the province, people actually want to live in Vancouver. A lot yeah. of them, at least. Like some people want to live in, you know, Golden and whatever, but... And there is like, it's not, it's not for nothing, but there are housing pressures that are beginning to exert themselves in small towns in part because people are being forced out of cities. If you fix the problem here, the problem will get fixed everywhere. Hopefully. Another big thing for cities that will potentially help a lot. And this is becoming a cross-partisan consensus at this point with the BC NDP basically taking it up, the federal government, the federal liberals taking it up. And I think this was even in Pierre Polyev's platform that I just talked about Good with Scott Lord. on <laughs> Politicoast, but it's to tie access to infrastructure funding to actions to increase housing supply generally and around transit. So you want that new SkyTrain to UBC, you better build some houses for it to yep. go out there. And that makes sense. Building a SkyTrain for no one is 
well, I don't know. It's what we did for Burnaby, but uh, it's what we should be doing. Like, it, it's not what we should. It's not what we should be doing. We need to make sure that these are appropriate uses of government funds, and like our infrastructure and our housing supply have to function together synergistically. There's also a bunch of money, one and a half billion over two years for CMHC's uh, rapid housing initiative to be extended. There's 2.9 billion for the National Housing Co-Investment Fund. There's almost half a billion for uh, the National Co-Investment Fund to launch a cooperative housing development program aimed at expanding co-op housing. Basically, several billion dollars more at a lot of different affordable housing approaches, which is promising. Like one of the big challenges Canada has faced and BC especially is that in the nineties, the feds got out of funding housing. Yes. And and that is, I think one of the, the worst legacies of, of the Paul Martin 1995 bad news budget, we got short-sighted basically. And for a growing country, we, we forgot what we needed to do in order to grow. There will also be $475 million for a one-time payment of $500 to those facing housing affordability challenges. This has been super criticized because it's like, what the fuck does that mean? It's just yeah. a check to renters? Question mark? I don't know. I have no Maybe idea. I'll get one because I have a big mortgage, but I don't really need it. I've gotten a lot of checks I don't really need from the governments in recent years. I like them. It's nice getting a thousand bucks after electing the NDP again in BC, but I didn't need it. There are people who do need it. Yeah. There's also a billion dollars in loans to be allocated to the rental construction financing initiative to support the, the, sorry, we mentioned that. No, we didn't. Sorry. No, I didn't mention that one, but it's kind of the same as the other ones. There is also a billion dollars in loans to be reallocated from the rental construction financing initiative to support co-op housing projects, which is again, similar to what we've mentioned before. They're going to be providing $150 million uh, over two years, starting in 2022-23, to support affordable housing and uh, related infrastructure in the North. Good for the North, I guess, since we're all going to have to move there eventually. And when I say we, I mean the population of Earth. Interesting things. This was in the Liberal platform. is a multi-generational home renovation tax credit. This is up to $7,500 in support for constructing secondary suites for a senior or adult with a disability. The idea being we're seeing a lot more multifamily homes or multi-generational family homes be worked on. Like my home has a suite that we largely use as an in-law suite when they visit, but there are places where, you know, you have your grandparents live with your, with the parents who live with the kids and it's a way to make it work and supporting those accommodations does help increase density if only on paper. Speaking about the environment, there's going to be $150 million over five years, starting next year, to Natural Resources Canada to develop the Canada Green Building Strategy. This is going to drive building code reform and accelerate the adoption and implementation of performance-based national building codes, promoting the use of lower carbon construction materials, i.e. like manufactured wood, and increase the climate resilience of existing buildings. Yeah, there's another, you know, a bunch of additional money being thrown at National Resource Canada to really look at greening homes, greening affordable homes, pilot projects being launched for a couple hundred million, researching construction materials, as you mentioned. These are all good. Housing and buildings use up a lot of energy. 
and making sure we can make new homes as energy efficient as possible and figure out what to do with all the older homes that are leaky and wasting energy is going to be really important to meeting our climate targets. There is an additional $200 million to Natural Resources Canada to support the Deep Retrofit Accelerator Initiative, which will provide support for retrofit audits and project management for large projects to accelerate the pace of deep retrofits in Canada. Not those shallow retrofits, but only deep ones, including a focus on low-income affordable housing. And then we are getting down into like smaller amounts, but they also proposed $458.5 million over the program duration to CMHC to provide low-interest loans and grants to low-interest housing providers as part of the low-income strain of the Canada Greener Homes loan program. Next up, there's some money going to tackling homelessness, half a billion dollars just over for two years for Infrastructure Canada to double annual funding for Reaching Home. This is a program that they say is doing vitally important work across the country to ensure communities have the support they need to prevent and address homelessness. I hadn't actually heard of it, but good. Similarly, there's some smaller investments, 18 million over three years on research on eliminating chronic homelessness and 62 million over three years for Veteran Affairs Canada to look at a veteran homelessness prog- program, which and feels now, like the minimum we should do for veterans. Yeah, at the very least. Now, the tax credits. Now that we've built a the bunch of stuff, how do we the- incentivize people to buy all this stuff we're building other than just, hey, it's really nice to have a home? Yeah. God. How, how can we incentivize people to satisfy their Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Good God. Now that we've planted a bunch of trees, let's put a bunch of gasoline on the forest fire that's still raging. (laughs) First up is the tax-free first home savings account. This is a $40,000 RRSP slash TFSA super account where you just don't pay tax. So RRSPs, you don't pay tax when you put the money in. TFSAs, you don't pay tax when you take the money out. This one, you just get to make... $40,000 that goes without tax that goes through this account to funnel it into a home purchase. But you also have to be under 40, I want to say. I can tell you where a bunch of my money is going to be going. Like, like the RESP or any of these vessels, if you can afford them, they are great. It doesn't help people who can't afford them. Also, $40,000 doesn't really help you buy a home in Vancouver. No, no, it does not. Still going to be putting my money there, though, because... I not rather not have it taxed if they don't want me to have it taxed. I mean, the government is providing me with this avenue. They'll also be doubling the first time home buyers tax credit to 10,000. This is an additional 1500 in direct support to home buyers. Also, there's the extension of the first time home buyer uh, incentive to March 31st, 2025. And there's also scaling up rent-owned projects, there's $200 million in dedicated support under the existing Affordable Housing Innovation Fund. Next up, there's a section on supporting home buyers overall. The Liberals are planning to bring on their Home Buyers Bill of Rights and find a plan to end blind bidding nationally. Having just gone through the home buying process, good. I like this stuff. Blind bidding sucks. When you go in with 40 other bids and your and your realtor's advice is, if you want this home, throw as much money at it as you can. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. 
that is terrifying and awful. So. Most interesting, though, I think, of these other measures is the Federal Review of Housing as an Asset Class. This is to better understand the role of large corporate players in the market and also just the market in general, and will potentially include changes to the tax treatment of large corporate players that invest in residential real estate. Not that that necessarily will help here, but small corporate players and also individuals are also engaging in quite a bit of fuckery. Listen, but... we don't want to harm the boutique working class mon pa landlord. Or as we call them in Vancouver, millionaires. Yeah. The, the amount of weak class analysis I've seen around people who literally own more than one home in media reporting like your your landed gentry as they used to say and yeah. that's okay that can be okay in our system or if, but let's as just as not pretend it's something it's very not. aware of liberal voters <laughs> sometimes conservative voters yeah next up comes another suite of tax measures and attempts to crack down on speculation notably the two-year ban on non-canadians foreigners from buying residential properties. Sure. It's a bit xenophobic. It's super popular though. It, yeah. Yeah. It's what it is. <laughs> it's, it is what it is. And xenophobia brings us actually to this week's Vancouverada. Yes. Let's talk about a pool. Yes. The crystal pool, in fact, which was once on the shores of Sunset Beach. It was the saltwater pool at Sunset Beach that opened in July 1929, and for six days a week, white people could swim there. But for one day a week, Negroes and Orientals could, according to the signage for the crystal pool. That park board. That Always park board. of its time. The city bought the land in 1939, and the park fort held the lease. The pool had bled money during the Depression, and... There were a bunch of stunts that were used to bring in customers, including watching the superintendent of beaches and parks leap off the diving board tied in a gunny sack as part of an underwater escape attempt. This would probably be more notable if he had drowned, but he did not. He also, or that person was talked into diving through the air to hit a ring of flame on the water. And there would also be wrestlers who would wrestle on a platform until one fell into the pool itself. World was very different before television and the internet. Yeah. In 1945, 21-year-old Vivian Jung stopped, was stopped from getting a life-saving certificate. She needed to join the Vancouver School Board as a full-time teacher. She wasn't allowed to swim in Crystal Pool with white people. Her students and colleagues uh, refused to go to the pool without her. And at that point, the segregation rule was abolished. Zhang became the first Chinese-Canadian teacher hired by the VSB and taught at the Vancouver Tecumseh Elementary School for 35 years. In 2014, the year that she died, Zhang Lane was named for her. This lane runs right by Sunset Beach. Good work by her and her students for standing up for her. I don't think teachers still need life-saving certificates. I think they need to do a first aid class. I yeah. don't think you need to get a life-saving certificate. Anyway, she did the right thing. It's fun to reminisce about this pool. It shut down ultimately in 1974 and was replaced by the Vancouver Aquatic Center, which we talked about recently, had a, a peace fall of 
<laughs> so time for a new one again. This Vancouver Auto was brought to you again by Vancouver Exposed, searching for the city's his hidden history by Eve Lazarus, a truly remarkable collection of anecdotes and historical tidbits that I have immensely loved perusing when I have a free moment. Highly recommend the book. Thank you, Eve, for writing it. I think you sometimes listen, so. Yes. And on that note, the April 22nd edition of the Canby Report comes to a close. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we hope you have a excellent weekend and a joyous week ahead. For Leg and Boot Media, I am Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Good day. <laughs>